This morning's sermon text is John 12, 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not gaining any, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I hope you've had a very good Christmas morning. Thanks for coming out. I know the temptation would be to just sit in the comfort of your home. And, uh, but I'm thankful that you're here. You know, we're finishing up this uh, Advent series uh, regarding Jesus coming to us and why. Um, you know, we've taken that for granted. I do want you to know that um, I might be a little loud, Oliver. Maybe if you can just, uh, not trying to come down from the ceiling. <clears throat> but the prevailing Greek thought at the time was that was that we who are material and bound in the limitations of flesh wanted to go up into the spiritual realm where there would be no more death or disease or despair. And so the idea that someone from the spiritual realm that has no death, disease, and despair would want to come into flesh is a showstopper just there. So this idea of actually Jesus wanting to come down is a significant idea. But we've been looking at why he's come down, and, and we've looked at these things. He's come down to be a friend. We looked at John 15. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. We found that he came to be a shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We found that he has come to be a servant, that he does not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And today we're going to see that he's come to be a king, and he's come to be a great king, but not one that we expected. So what I want to do in this text is look at, it's really in two parts. Jesus entering Jerusalem is going to be disclosing himself. What does he mean by, I'm coming as a king? And then we see the responses to this revelation of his kingship. So the first thing is simply this. How does he disclose himself? In other words, we don't get to kind of draw the picture of, what it means to say Jesus is king. He's going to draw it for us. And the first thing he shows us is that he is a king uh, that is a promised king. He comes as a promised king. He was promised in the scriptures that he is disclosing himself as one, not self-appointed, but one that God has appointed to send as a king. So now you may not know this. I mentioned it, I think, a few weeks back. But the Gospel of John is kind of cut up into two parts. And the first part of John, at least the first 11 chapters, is built around these seven signs, these seven miracles. The first one you probably remember is the wedding at Cana where Jesus makes wine from water. And, and so these, these signs, these miraculous events, 
were designed to kind of signal this is the Messiah. This is the one that has come from God. And then throughout those first 11 chapters, you see these miracles taking place one after the other until chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. That's a big sign. You don't see that happening. You know, you're kind of impressed if somebody can raise a dead man. And so all these signs, So you've either got to stop right now with me and say, yeah, these are true. This would be a signal or we don't believe it. Because the scriptures are saying one after another, he was doing these things that were profound. And they were all signaling, this is the one that's coming. So that's, that's how John lays out the first half of his gospel. So then let's pick up our story in chapter 12. He's entering Jerusalem now. And it says all the crowds are going out to him. Well, who are these crowds? Well, they're people from all over the place that are coming to celebrate this feast of Passover. Now, Jerusalem is normally around 30,000 people. But around the Feast of Passover, it could swell. Now, the numbers are quite exaggerated, like we kind of do as well. But there could be as many as 200,000 people in Jerusalem. And so they're all there. And, and, and they're hearing about this Jesus. Now, Jesus had three years of ministry. You know, from John chapter 12 to the end of the book, it's about a week. So all that ministry was in those first three years. And these people would have been hearing about it. And do you notice in verses 17 and 18, the crowds that were there in Bethany when he raised Lazarus from the dead, they were now giving witness to this Jesus. Bethany was a small town just a short distance away. So they're talking it up as you would. If you saw a dead man come out of the hole and you would begin talking about it, especially if the man who raised him from the dead was coming to Jerusalem right now. So can you imagine these crowds? That kind of explains why they're waving palm branches, which was kind of the sign of the coming of a national liberator. And they're shouting, Hosanna, save us. And they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So you know they're running out there with an excitement. I mean, this is the one that could raise the dead. This is the one that fed the 5,000. I mean, can you imagine the excitement and the exuberance in these people? I mean, it had been unbelievable. Now, Jesus... He begins to receive this adulation. Now, you know, if you've read the Gospels, he is very reticent to receive any sort of adulation like this. If you remember back in John chapter 6, 15, when he fed the 5,000, John records that Jesus perceived they were going to take him by force and make him king, and he withdrew to the wilderness. So he wasn't wanting to foment this adulation. But now he seems to. He seems to want to. In fact... He makes this visual illustration. It's really an acted-out parable when he gets on the donkey. Well, what's the point of getting on the donkey? It was another signal. I mean, God doesn't do things in a corner. He does things to be seen. He does things to be noticed. And so he gets on the donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah 9. And we read it. John quotes it in his gospel. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold your king. He comes to you sitting on a donkey. There it is. He's sitting on a donkey. He is coming as the promised king. He's fulfilling the promise of God. God had already designed. He had always designed. You know, this fulfillment of the promise goes all the way back to Genesis. Think about Genesis 1 and 2. God creates the heavens and the earth, right? And he creates and he forms Adam and Eve. They are the first royal couple, as I said last night. Adam is the first king. He's a king. He's king over God's creation. And he's been given the right with Eve to rule, to cultivate, to protect, to steward, to multiply God's kingdom. And what happens? Of course, we know the story, right? 
Adam wants to set up a kingship under his own rule. He doesn't want to submit to God. And so he rebels against God. God moves him out of the garden. It's a fallen kingdom, isn't it? But you know what? God promised in grace that this fallen king would have a son. And sons of fallen kings are still ultimately going to be kings. And so they were looking for it. Noah, you see, kind of a king. He had kingly qualities like like Adam. Then you see Abraham, kind of a king, but not really. Then you see David, the high watermark, if you will, in the kingdom. He is a king, in fact, but he's a fallen king. We know that. But God said to him in 2 Samuel, you're going to have a son who would, of course, be a king, and he will have an eternal kingdom. His kingdom will never end. And so you see that picked up in Isaiah and given greater clarity in Daniel. So they're waiting for a king. So Jesus comes, and as a baby, what do wise men look for? They look for a king. They go to Herod. Where is the king of the Jews? We've come to worship the king of the Jews. So do you see this God had planned all along? A perfect, glorious king would come. And that is, of course, Christ. It shows us the faithfulness of God. I mean, what don't you believe about God right now? Where are you even struggling to believe in his promises that he has in the scripture? Do you question God? Do you doubt his sincerity? Do you question his character, his trustworthiness? Hear a promise given from the very beginning of creation has been, has been carried out in perfection with us? I mean, it's incredible. God is faithful. You can trust God. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. Folks, we can hang on to that. There is nothing out there that is so solid as the promises that God has given to us. We, we're called. That, that's what it means for the Christian here to have faith. It means to believe that God is true to what he says. So we see that Jesus has come as a promise king. But secondly, we see that Jesus has come as a humble king. Now, he comes into his capital. He's the king. He comes into his capital. Now, most people would enter a capital entirely different. If you were a dignitary or a prince or if you were a king or a general, you would come in on a horse or you would come in perhaps on a chariot. But you wouldn't be walking on the ground that your subjects are walking on. You would be above it. So you could look down on them and so that they could look up to you on this big horse. And you would go through the streets, really, if you will, metaphorically, you're claiming the capital as your own. It'd be like a ticker tape parade is how they would normally enter. So Jesus chooses a donkey, and it says a young donkey. So this donkey hasn't even matured to its adult stature. And a Middle Eastern donkey is even smaller than a Western donkey. So it would be like coming in on a Shetland pony. It would be coming in so that a grown man would have to lift his legs so they wouldn't drag along the ground. He comes in beneath the people. He's lower than the people. If he's riding a donkey, we're looking down on him. Why would he do this? Well, Jesus is showing us the nature of his kingdom. It's not just a promised kingdom. It's a humble kingdom marked by humility. That he's not coming in to conquer us. He's coming in to save us. And he's going to come in to save us by becoming like us, even under us, that he might deliver all of us. I mean, you see this in his ministry. In the next chapter, he's going to wash the feet of his disciples. He stoops down and cares for children. He touches and heals and ministers to women. He touches lepers. I mean, you think about some of the glitziness of our ministries, and then you hold it up to his ministry, marked by humility. We love glitz and glamour, and yet he seems to be drawn to that which is you know, subordinate and, 
and humble and understated. That's the kind of kingship he is. And he's leading. But then thirdly, he's also a universal king. Now, known in the Old Testament was that God always had a plan for the entire world, that the Gentiles would be saved. So the gospel would be coming through Israel unto the nations. Well, after some time, Israel seemed to forget about the through Israel and to the nations, and they saw it as to Israel, and it stopped there. And you can see this by the rhetoric of the Pharisees when they say, in angst, they say, the whole world's going to them. Well, somebody should have said, well, no kidding, they were all supposed to. But they didn't want the whole world going to him. They're threatened by him. But Jesus has come to be a universal king. In fact, when the crowds were going to him, uh, the crowds would have been representational of the world. Why do I say that? Well, think about all the nations and ethnicities that would have been there. In fact, when Peter preaches in Acts 2, remember the Spirit comes and they begin to speak in tongues? And what happens? You know, they all, they all hear their own languages speaking. There are people from all different countries right next to that are hearing these different languages. So we know that many ethnicities are represented and they're going out, showing us a picture that the world will be drawn to Christ. Or how about in verse 20? We didn't read this, but just in the next section, it says there were Greeks in the crowd. They went up to Philip who grabbed Nathaniel because they said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. The, the world is going to Jesus Christ. God is underlining us that Christ is a king over all the nations, over all ethnicities, over black, over white, over every different people group, every, over every different language group, he will be a king. And then the, the fourth thing you see about his kingship, and really the most ironic, is his suffering. He came to be a suffering king. Now, you know, you probably know in the story in Matthew 2, when Jesus was born, he was not welcomed by the king of Israel at the time, but uh, there was an attempt made on his life. Immediately being birthed, uh, they tried to kill him, right? His ministry is marked by what? Marked by rejection and frustration and anger and bitterness. You see, even if you were to read chapter 11, you would see in the raising of Lazarus, now, this, this shows you how blind we can be. In the raising of Lazarus, the Pharisees saw it and they said, we've got we've to kill this man. Now, it's kind of ironic that he raises someone from the dead and they want to make him go to the dead. In fact, they wanted to put Lazarus back in the tomb as well. They wanted to snuff this out. So Jesus is coming as a suffering king. Now, he knows this because if you were to look down a little bit in your verses, In 24, Jesus says this, especially when the Greeks come to him. When the world begins to go to him, notice what he says. He says this. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus knows that hour, that hour of death when he will bear the the just wrath of God over our sins, the hour has come for him to be glorified. He will be glorified through his death. Isn't that incredible that his reign of glory begins in death? That God takes death and he makes it a glorious thing? Why? Well, he says in the very next verse, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. What is the fruit that he's speaking about? The fruit is the conversion of the nations. 
The fruit is the Greeks coming to him. The fruit is all the nations coming to him. That Jesus' reign will begin in a death, but it will bring forth life. I mean, this, this kind of kingship is one that's been promised. It's humble. It's universal. And, and it's marked by deep suffering. Well, I don't know what you think about that. I don't know if that is something that you would have expected. But we see the various responses of the people. So, so you see the disciples in 16. What are they, so how do they respond to this kind of disclosure? Well, you see the disciples, they're just confused. They have a confused faith. And John, thankfully, and this is, this is another point of the integrity and the veracity of the Scriptures. The apostles, they don't protect themselves and they don't cover their errors. And they don't cover their miscues. They record it. John says, we didn't understand. We didn't get it until it was glorified. We had no idea. They were confused. I think they were men of faith because in 13, Jesus says, you're all clean. So they were men of faith, but they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. I just wonder, you know, that the Spirit hadn't come in John 16. Jesus says, the Spirit will come and will lead you to understand everything that I've told you. So the Spirit came and led them. But that just is a simple reminder for us. If you're a Christian here, that you need the Spirit of God to illuminate the Scriptures. You know, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says that you know, spiritual things are discerned by spiritual people. Do you understand that? I mean, I mean, that we just don't come to these words of God as if we have the acumen to all of a sudden understand everything that's said. That we come asking for the Spirit to fill us and to illuminate His Word that we might understand. It's really like a humbling, if you will, for us to come and say, God, I want to understand your word. I want to understand your plan. I want to understand the glory of Christ, but I need your spirit to help me understand these things. I would encourage you, if you're a Christian, to begin praying that when you read the scriptures. So there's a confused faith, but there's also a misplaced faith, if you will, in the crowds. So the crowds, I think they kind of were getting it, right? They're going out with palm branches. And they're saying, Hosanna, save us. Now, the Hosanna, that just means save us. And, and it isn't like you're falling into oblivion and you cry out to nothing, you know, save me. No, it's you see your deliverer coming and you say, save me. It's like you're drowning and, and you see a lifeguard all of a sudden spot you. And then you say, save me, save me. So you see the deliverer coming and you're calling out to him because you know he can save you. So th- their, their heart is saying, Jesus, save us. And they say, blessed is he. They quote Psalm 118, 24. And, and they apply that little addition of even the king of Israel. So they see him as the fulfillment of Psalm 118. But, but what happens? They, they melt away. These crowds with all their palm branches. A week later, where are they? They're gone. They're toast. They, they're nowhere to be found. What happened? Do you ever wonder about that? Where did the crowds go? They weren't there. Nobody was supporting them. Nobody was defending them. They just kind of melted away. Well, I think they had a misplaced faith. They saw Jesus as a liberator geopolitically, maybe financially, in terms of military rule. And when Jesus didn't fulfill on their expectations, they had faith to believe that he could do these things. But when he didn't do those things, then the faith pulled back. It was kind of a quid pro quo. You know, you're not going to do what you're going to Okay, well, I'm going to just step back from faith. We see the same thing today. In fact, this kind of explains why we see people who come to faith and walk back faith. 
They believe in Jesus for these things, and then when he doesn't do these things, then we walk faith back, and we say, you know, we, we step back from faith. I see a lot of people exuberant and excited, but when the job doesn't happen, or the health doesn't come, or the relationship isn't restored, then all of a sudden Jesus isn't who they thought he was, and they just kind of peel back. They don't reject them initially, but they just kind of sever the relationship slowly. If you're here and you've had this experience where Jesus has been unsatisfying to you or he hasn't accomplished what you've wanted him to, has your faith been in what he's produced for you or is it in him? In other words, the scripture, while the benefits of Christ are true and genuine and right, they're not distributed according necessarily to our timeline or our perception of need. The scriptures are calling us to be in union with Christ, not simply looking at the benefits. For many people, the benefits don't come. They will. There will be no one that is unsatisfied in the end. But in this life, we will have trouble. But he says we can be of good cheer because he's overcome the world. It's union with Christ. And, And in him we have all things. Even maybe the strength to live through not getting what we wanted. So, so we see this misplaced faith. You know, if, if you're here and that's been your, that's been you know, you've looked to more of what he can do for you than what he is to you, then it's a point of repentance. It's a point of maybe just stopping and saying, Jesus, perhaps I have used you as a bit of a of a water boy. I, I've used you as a bit of a a go to when I've had problems. I I haven't loved you like I should love you for who you are, but I've just loved you for what you've done for me. And, and I'm sorry for that. I mean, repent of that and move back toward him with the relationship. You know, marriage is, is the picture that we have in the New Testament of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And a marriage is so much more intimate than just what are you doing for me and what am I doing for you? Now, that's a contractual deal, but this is much more of an intimate thing with Jesus. And then you see a third response among the Pharisees and these religious leaders. You, you see them really with a religious faith, if you will. Uh, you know, they're threatened by him, no doubt. And uh, they're intimidated by him because the whole world's going to him. And, uh, and I think what intimidates them is, is simply this, that Jesus, not just popularity, that's there, but what Jesus is saying to the religious people is, you need me as much as a prostitute does. Now, that's kind of offensive. You know, if you're a religious person and you've lived your life in strict measure to be said, listen, you're, you're as filthy as the prostitute has been in business for 10 years. You need me like she does. That bothers religious people. Or it can bother people who have rested in their religiosity as a means of finding favor with God. They didn't like that. They didn't like Jesus saying, you come to me. The religious leaders said, hey, we got the law of Moses. We're good. We have our traditions. We have our practices. We have our Bible. We're doing very well with it. We're living our lives in very good fashion. Thank you, Jesus. No thanks. And I do see this as kind of a a thread that can weave through the evangelical church where where by God's grace we move in sanctification and our lives are being reformed, we are being changed from glory to glory, and we begin to see ourselves as growing in holiness and we begin perhaps to forget the fact that we still need the gospel today 
just like we did back when we converted? That we need Christ every day? That just because by His grace our lives are becoming cleaner doesn't mean that we're any better off than the prostitute in the sense that the gospel saves all of us. I I pray for you that if you have found your confidence with God increasing over what you've been doing, I would caution you that the confidence that we have is never to be rooted in what we do for God, but it's always rooted in what God has done for us. Now, God is pleased in our obedience. He calls us to obey him. If you love me, you obey me. He is pleased with our obedience. But our obedience is a, is a result. It, it's, a, uh, it's a result of our love for God. That's why he says, love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. That's why Augustine said, love God and do what you want. If you love him, then you're going to obey him. But we don't want our confidence to rest in our obedience, but on Christ's obedience. This is what we mean by imputed righteousness, that Jesus has come and lived a perfect life for the Christian and has given to the Christian his righteousness so that when God sees us, he sees Christ and all of his finished work for us. And that's why we have a great hope and a great joy. And if we have a bad week and you sin, then you repent and you remind yourself, this is why I love Christ every day. Because he who began a good work will complete that good work in me. Then the last faith I think you see is the seeking faith. These these Greeks that are coming. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I'm just going to 20 because I love that verse. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? They're hungry. They're just hungry to hear and see this person that they've heard so much about. Perhaps you're even here today and you are seeking. You, You... You don't know that you have a clear relationship with Jesus Christ, that he is your king and that he is your savior and you're seeking to know more. Let me me fuel that. Let me encourage that. Let me ask you to consider these things, that you you would talk to the family that you're here with, that you would ask about why do you believe? Why do you find him to be the king? Now, for the Christian here, so let me just step back from the text one step further and say, for the Christian here, let me give you some implications that I'd like you to be thinking about. Number one, I want you to think about the global implications with this text. I want you to think beyond just North Raleigh and CCC. You know, we are here as testimony to this text. The whole world is going to him, they said. We are a fulfillment of that. We're partway around the world. We're a bunch of Gentiles believing in Jesus Christ, claiming that he's our king. We're walking out this text. This is the impetus we have, not just to understand the origin of our salvation, because the world's going to go to them. This is the impetus for missions. This is why we, we want to plant churches on unreached people groups, because he said the world's going to go to him. So we're going to go and preach the gospel to the world. This is where our confidence is. Our confidence is not in missional strategy. Our confidence is in the promise that he is king over all the nations and all the people groups. And that's why we go. That's why we pray for it. Our involvement and engagement with God is through prayer in that. In fact, we have this picture in Revelation 7 where he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and tongues and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, 
crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So that's the, that's the implication. What, how are we involved? I was praying for one of our friends in the east, even this morning. They were having evangelistic outreach. I was asked, pray at 5.30 a.m. We're going to share the gospel with unreached people groups, praying for them. This very morning, the gospel is going out. The nations are coming to him. So we want to be involved in that, be praying about it, excited about it. And then there's political implications here, right? He is a king. Are we thankful for our government? Are we thankful for our government? Not because who's going to be in office. We're to be thankful for our government that God has ordained government. But look, the government that he has ordained, our government is quite imperfect. But we have a king that's going to come who is quite perfect. In fact, in Isaiah, that promise. Listen to these words. Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of David. And over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, Sabaoth, will do this. God will bring about Christ's kingdom. We will be part of a kingdom. We will be part of a perfect government where justice, equity will be the rule. Do you look forward to that? Do you ever think about that? In our hand-wringing over our government and, and over the waste and every other complaint you may have, do you ever see that government and think, but one is coming. I'm longing for a government to come where Christ will reign over all. Let me encourage you, when you move with criticism, can you just follow it with repentance and prayer for the leaders? And then thankfulness that we have a government that comes where Christ will be king. Let's just do that. This year in 17, let's just begin to take our criticisms, move into repentance, because God's ordained government, and then move into thankfulness for what we have, and then longing for that government to come. It, it'll get, this is what we do. When we begin longing and praying for that day, then we prepare ourselves for death. Because as Jonathan Edwards says, the pilgrim is never sad at the end of his journey. When we get to the end of our lives, we're not sad. It's the end of the journey. We now get to be with Christ. There's no sadness to that. There's joy and happiness and freedom. And a couple other implications. One would be just ecclesial. I just want to keep the L's going at the end. But a church. There's, a, there's an implication for our church. If Christ is king, he's the king of this church. That we have elders, but elders are under shepherds, under the king. That your life and this church life is to be lived in light of the king. So we're not part of an Episcopal system where there's a bishop and, and authority flows down. We're not part of a Presbyterian system where there is a degree of authority that exists outside the local body. We're a congregationalist, which means that the authority is here, that every church has Christ as its head and that we are living for him. Now, we join the Southern Baptist Conference. Why? Well, because we want to collect our efforts together and, and we want to advance theological education that we couldn't do as a single church and we advance world missions that we couldn't do as a single church. And so we're part of this conference so that we can join together and see his name go to the nations. But Christ is king of this church. And, and he exercises authority over this church. That's why you pray for your elders. You pray for your elders because we want to be, sub, we want to be submissive and sensitive to the spirit of God. 
And, and you want to be seeking. Also, the personal implications for you is are you living as if his kingdom is occupying your life? You know, the kingdom of Christ that he came to bring, he initiated this kingdom. He inaugurated it. It's going to be consummated when he comes back. But, but he initiated, it's not a geographical area. The kingdom of God now is seen as your lives are beginning to reflect more of his rule. And so as you live in light of his rule, then people begin to see that's a foretaste of the kingdom. So the implications are global, they're, they're political, and they're, they're for this church. Much to think about there. He comes as a promised king. He comes as a humble king. He comes as a universal king and a suffering king. You saw the various responses to his disclosure. Some confused, some misplaced. Some have a religious faith. They're trusting in themselves. I pray that's not you. If you feel right now that your position with God is made secure because of what you have done or what you're doing, I would say that that would mean that you're not a Christian. A Christian counts and puts all the weight and the safety of his soul on the work that Jesus Christ has done when he said, it is finished. That work was done by him, not by us. We're thankful for it. And by grace, we believe in it. And that's where our hope is. I hope that's for you today. Well, let's take a minute now. Maybe just, just um, if you feel like this has brought conviction to your soul, the gospel is for the Christian convicted, let's repent. If perhaps it's opened your eyes to understand certain things, let's take a minute and just silently give thanks to God. Or maybe you need more help in some area. Then, then let's ask God. He says, you have not because you ask not. So let's pray, and then an elder is going to close us in just a minute.